the energy transition is underway. Houston should be at the center of it. I think getting back to what you said, Mike, earlier about politicians making incorrect statements about renewable energy, what really bothered me about that is the negative messaging that goes to people, entrepreneurs, companies that may be thinking about growing their businesses in Houston. We don't need politicians to create a negative atmosphere. We should be welcoming these companies that want to grow here. We are here to try to explain to you what it is we do here. The solar industry in the U.S. employs more people than Google, Apple, Facebook, and Twitter combined. The most valuable commodity I know of is information. Wouldn't you agree? Welcome into the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. I am your host, Fred Davis. And as we continue to celebrate Women's History Month, we're very excited about our next guest, Miss Kama Call, Executive Director of Renewable Energy Alliance Houston, also known as Real Houston, and former CEO of Noble Wind Energy. But before we get into Miss Kama Call's story, it is that time once again for the NEMA News Minute. So please welcome Miss Donna Foy with the NEMA News Minute. This is Donna Foy, Deputy Director of the North American Energy Markets Association. Thanks again for the opportunity to provide another name update for the Green Insiders listeners. As I mentioned last time, we're going full speed ahead on planning for the 2021 Fall Conference to be hosted by Customized Energy Solutions in Philadelphia. We can now announce that the conference will be October 4 through 6 at the Logan Hotel. People should be receiving their Save the Date notices early this week. The weather should be beautiful, will feature a lot of great outdoor events, the pandemic should be well contained, and people will be ready to get together with friends and colleagues. We're also continuing with our virtual presentation series. Our next presentation is on managing renewables and storage within modern energy portfolios by Brock Masovsky from Sequan. Traditional portfolio management strategies designed for fleets of dispatchable thermal generation assets are obsolete. Explore state-of-the-art techniques for managing renewable-heavy portfolios and the key role battery storage plays. That presentation will be on Wednesday, March 24th at 3 o'clock Eastern. We also have presentations coming up from Kevin Helmick of Amazon Web Services, who will share his insights on both sides of the CNI market on April 14th, and Julian Dumoulin-Smith from Bank of America Securities, with his insights on the 2021 energy market on April 28th. We'll provide more information on those and other presentations very soon. On the RFP front, the Energy Authority, on behalf of American Municipal Power, has issued an RFP to procure renewable generation from projects in both PJM and delivered to the LGEE interface. Total contract capacity ranges from 100 to 150 megawatts AC, with a maximum capacity of 50 megawatts AC for the LGEE delivered project. Term preference is between 10 and 30 years, and AMP is seeking bids for full attribute solar generation PPAs with preferred commercial operation date of 2023. AEP Energy Partners is seeking offtake from new solar or new repowered wind facilities and standalone or co-located battery energy storage systems located in PJM. 
The deadline for notice of intent to bid was March 10th, but final proposals are due March 26th, so maybe you can still squeak in. Please see NEMA's website, NEMA.com, for additional details. Lastly, a number of NEMA member job opportunities are still posted at our website. That's it for now. Thanks, Fred. Thank you once again to Ms. Donna Foy. If you want to learn more about being a NEMA member, if you're not one already, go to the website, NEMA.com. And, of course, all the information, job postings, RFPs, what have you, you can find all of those on the website as well at NEMA.com. That's NEMA.com. All right, let's turn our attention now to Ms. Kay McCall, Executive Director of Renewable Energy Alliance Houston. We'll get into her background navigating both the oil and gas as well as the renewable space. Her time as CEO uh, of a wind company over there in New England the difference between the oil and gas renewable spaces and what it's like starting up a brand new renewable organization in the fourth largest city in the country during a pandemic. Great information, lots of energy. Please welcome Miss Kay McCall. Originally from Fort Worth, which as you say, you know, when you're from Fort Worth, you're from Fort Worth. You're not from some adjacency to Fort Worth, but from Fort Worth, but uh, got to Houston in the uh, early 80s, and Houston has uh, has been home. I, I consider myself a, a Houstonian now. Graduated from law school at University of Houston, started uh, my career as a trial lawyer, working primarily with companies that were in the oil and gas and petrochemical space, either in the services side or, uh, you know, the petrochemical companies. Then I went and in-house for one of my clients, which was an engineering and construction company, which was primarily working in the gas processing um, um, area, also in the petrochemical area. And after that, did a tour through Enron with um, incredibly perfect timing, got there two and a half years before it went under. Um, But that was my first introduction to the power industry primarily, um, well, actually exclusively the conventional power industry. From there, I went to General Electric. Again, all of this still in Houston, worked on the power side of their business and also got back into the oil and gas side for a couple of years. From there, in uh, 2008, I uh, got a passport to um, live in New England and moved to Connecticut, where I went to work for a wind energy company, which was in the early stages, was there for 10 years as a council in the last year, last eight years as the uh, CEO. So that was when I went both both feet forward in, into uh, renewable energy in 2008, and I've, I've been there since. What was it about after, you know, and, and you'd been in the oil and gas side, power side for what, 20 plus years in before you decided to make the jump to the renewable energy side? Yeah, and it wasn't really deciding to make the jump to the renewable energy side. It was a job presented itself or was presented to me that happened to be in renewable energy. At the same time, I was looking at other opportunities in the oil and gas space and uh, decided to take the one that, that was, would take me to Connecticut and into renewable energy. But it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to make a pivot. It wasn't anything as intentional as that. So, okay, so that, then that's even more interesting to me then. So what, what did you know about the renewable energy sector? What was kind of your feeling or your thoughts about just that industry as a whole back in, you know, the mid to late 2000s? I had a, a bit of encounter working with renewable energy when I was at GE. GE had bought the Enron wind business 
And I worked a little bit with that business when it was new to GE and thought it was an interesting, interesting business. It wasn't ever anything I'd given any, any thought to. And then when uh, renewable energy, the renewable energy opportunity came up, I thought, well, this is something different. And I've always liked something different. And it wasn't that I had anything against the oil and gas side. It was like, this is something new and and interesting. And, And 2008 was still, you know, the early years, relatively speaking, of renewable energy. And that appealed to me. But, you know, I'm a Houstonian, so it wasn't like I was like anti oil and gas. I always like to do the different thing, you know, and it was the different thing. And then I, and then I really took to it. I really like it. So you get there to New England. Um, how much of what was kind of the adjustment period for you and, and just how much different was it from versus what you were accustomed to on the oil and gas side of things? Well, I went into a pre, I went from General Electric to a small pre-revenue company. So it was night and day different. And we were developing projects, wind projects, bringing wind projects online, it was um, it was early and it was exciting, but it was 2008. So then, like so many other businesses, there was a bit of a spin out with that. And, uh, you know, that wasn't a particularly fun time in very many businesses, I don't think. But meanwhile, I had really started to understand wind energy, started to understand what it was about and and really appreciated the, the attributes that it brings to the energy world. And so as you're doing this in 2008 and seeing kind of the, the, the scope of it, did you, did you realize then, okay, we're, we're, we're on the cusp of something really special here? I realized that it was going to be an, an industry that would continue to grow, but also understanding electricity and the role of hydrocarbons in the rest of the world. I knew that this was, that we were on, we were on a journey that was going to take some period of time and what that period of time would be, you know, it was really hard to say, but, um, but I, I mean, I knew it made sense. I mean, I, honestly, I've had people say, well, do, do you think wind energy is going to go away or become obsolete? And, and I think back to the fact that my grandfather, who was a farmer in central Texas, had um, had wind energy in the form of a windmill to put water in his stock tank, you know, a hundred years ago. The way we see it today and the scale of it is definitely new, but the concept is not a new concept. What was the biggest difference from when you were at it in 2008, 2010 and, and going through that process to, you know, kind of what you've seen and what industry is going through right now? Well, it's just an industry in maturing. And anytime you have a maturing industry, You're developing, the industry itself is developing a culture, it's developing a body of knowledge, it's bringing different people into it. And so the, you know, the feeling of the industry changes over time. I mean, the wind industry has been impacted by some of the European players who've been big. There were, at one time, uh, a large number of smaller companies, there's been some consolidation But I would say that one of the things that I think is the biggest change is that 10 years ago, renewable energy was and renewable energy investment was identified by technologies. Now, so you were in wind or you were in solar. Now what you're seeing is the, the breaking down of some of those silos and now it's renewable energy, be it be it in solar or wind. And that's a change. I mean, because it was, you just didn't have that uh, at the beginning. Hey, Kay, 
when you were in your time, spending time in New England, had the offshore wind development started up there? It was starting at the end of when I was there. Do you, do you have much knowledge with regards to getting wind from, granted, there's a lot of space in the ocean. We can put those windmills up. But there's, an, there's inherently a higher cost to develop that space versus in West Texas, right? What kind of cost difference is there? Do you have any idea of that idea, I, price I, might be? I don't know what the numbers are, but much more expensive, not just to build, but also to, to service. That's the the part I think would be interesting is uh, learning more about how how these uh, large wind turbines will be serviced or are serviced. I mean, offshore wind isn't new. It's just new to the U.S. It was a shame that through the freeze we had here in ERCOT, first thing that got the bad publicity was the wind from our governor. In fact, the wind helped us get back online because he was mistaken in what he said. But uh, anyway, Texas, things built in Texas just aren't built for 10 degree weather. I mean, well, that's just the bottom line. Yeah. Well, we, we operated at Noble, we operated wind turbines in upstate New York, 60 miles from the Canadian border and outside of Buffalo, New York. And then also just south of the Oklahoma, Texas border in the panhandle. And I will say that our, our, our equipment in, in New York was, you know, fully winterized. And our equipment in Texas was not because when you were doing the economics at the time, you're, you're looking at weather as you have known it for the past 20 years. And as you're doing the return on investment calculation, it didn't seem that that would come into play very often. You know, what we're seeing is an increase in severe weather events, right? My suspicion is a lot of the the planning information that people use is based on some weather assumptions which are no longer reliable. But to that point also, I just want to throw in, if in 2014, there was a polar vortex in New York and in the Northeast. For us at Noble, that was our best month's ever of wind production because those turbines properly or adequately outfitted able to fill the gap when other forms of generation were not available. But the wind was blowing, the equipment was ready to go, and we achieved record production in that time period. One of the things we keep hearing is that because of the, the, the how old these turbines are, now maybe you can speak to that a little bit, are they too old to retrofit given, like you mentioned, the ROI, or is it better off just, you know, hey, you're just going to have to replace the turbines? Well, you've got too old based on what people use for assumptions for making investments using a standard economic life, right? The reality is wind turbines, like other equipment, if you maintain it, you know, make adjustments as you go along can last for an extremely long time. You put turbines in 15 years ago, 10 or 15 years ago, and you're doing a calculation over a five-year period, if you look at it as a 20-year economic life, which I don't think that'll, that's, that won't be the reality, but that's sometimes how the numbers get crunched, then it starts looking a little iffy. I don't, I don't want to speculate on how much a retrofit would cost, you know, equipment manufacturer would be able to give you that kind of information or a service provider could do that. But I, I'd just be making it up. Kind of walk us through just how wind turbines are maintained after they're put into the ground. The way we maintained them was according to the manufacturer's spe- specifications is you had maintenance cycles twice a year. 
Um, and you know, you're, you're greasing, you're tightening bolts, you're checking stuff out and, and you work through turbine by turbine. Uh, you don't take the whole wind farm down. You're, you're working on a turbine at a time. However, I will say this, if you do have significant maintenance you need to do, say on a substation or some other equipment that is going to be a longer outage, you would have that in there because that's usually not a high season for wind turbines or actually any generation, right? I mean, in Texas, because it's the air conditioning season that we think of as the peak. Um, yeah, so I mean, it's, you know, it's, equi- I mean, it's equipment that's like maintaining a car or a sophisticated car, but it's up, you know, 300 and some odd feet or however high up the, uh, your nacelle is. Family notwithstanding, were you ready to make a change or had, do you think you'd still be there right now had, had uh, you know, family and life not come calling? Well, the company, we sold the company. And so my, my term was up and I was, I was ready to get back to Texas. I mean, that was, I enjoyed seeing another part of the country, but it was, it was time for this uh, Texas gal to get back here. How did the Renewable Energy Alliance of Houston come about? So when I got back, I took a little time off, which I'd never done before, and then started working to get uh, reacquainted with the Houston professional scene, the Houston renewable energy scene. I've been gone 10 years. You know, Houston's an incredibly open place. I would send a, a message or call somebody and, uh, you know, strangers would take meetings back in the day when we had meetings. And, um, and ultimately, I ended up with an introduction to Michael Scaly, who's very well known in the, in the actually, um, in the renewable industry overall, including Houston. And uh, Michael was working with a group of people who wanted to launch the Renewable Energy Alliance. The thought being that there, we needed a network, a networking opportunity for people in renewable energy so we can start creating that, those synergies and also draw attention to the fact that there is a renewable energy industry here in Houston. I came at it from the standpoint as as I got back here and I I have adult children who are here as uh, someone who believes strongly that Houston should be the epicenter of all energy going forward. It's been the oil and gas capital. It should be the energy transition capital. It has it has the attributes that you need for that, an amazing workforce. Uh, many of whom are currently in the oil and gas space. It has in its DNA the idea that you go big or go home and what we're going to need to really progress the energy transition are are big ideas and people who aren't afraid to fail, people who who think big, and Houston has that. I mean, Houston, in Houston, we don't nibble around the edges, right? We We go straight for it, and that's an important part of it. And at the bottom of it all for me is I want my kids to be able to have the the great experience I've had in Houston, which is, you know, being a part of a tremendous professional community, a tremendously diverse city, tremendously international city. And as I see the energy transition progressing, I see growth occurring in renewable energy related businesses at a greater pace than what I project. Again, this is my personal opinion, nobody else's, um, for the oil and gas space. 
And I also know that, that, that when I talk to people of a certain age, they're more interested in working in renewable and in the renewable energy industry than they are in the hydrocarbon um, industry. And I want to help that be available because I, I just so strongly believe in Houston and what it represents. So I had this opportunity to get involved with this organization and help launch it. Now, this was in 2019. So when I said, sure, I'll launch it, I I wasn't aware that we were going to have a pandemic. I wasn't aware that the oil industry was going to see the disruption in pricing that, that it ultimately saw. But to me, that just made it more obvious that, that, that this is what Houston needs. And we truly need to create a space for the two parts of, it's more than two, but the different aspects of what constitutes energy can create synergies can become educated about each other and then can cross-pollinate with opportunities as time goes on. What kind of reception have you gotten when you go out there and let folks know that you, you know, with this mission, with this objective that you want to bring both sides together? I frequently get approached by people who are either currently working in oil and gas or were recently laid off. And I do hear from a lot of people, and of course, this is a little self-selection. They're going to be the ones who talk to me, who say, yeah, thank you. I really want to learn more, and I want to get involved in this other part of the industry. One message point, which I've started delivering recently, which has really um, resonated with people more than expected, is I've started saying, you know, we have to quit with the negativity one towards the other, right? I mean, it is not helpful to our cause as a city, as a state, for one form of energy to take hot shots at another form of energy or to criticize the other form of energy. The energy transition is underway. Houston should be at the center of it. I think getting back to what you said, Mike, earlier about politicians making incorrect statements about renewable energy. What really bothered me about that is the negative messaging that goes to people, entrepreneurs, companies that may be thinking about growing their businesses in Houston. We don't need politicians to create a negative atmosphere. We should be welcoming these companies that want to grow here. And the city does and the people do. But um, it would be helpful uh, for all of us to just dial it back a little bit and let's get on board and, and let's, let's all work together for, for the future. And, and, and look at what we have to offer. Speaking of this younger generation, we have the energy research triangle here. We have University of Houston, Rice, and Texas A&M three tier one research universities. And that's not even considering the other universities that we have as well. There's SU, St. Thomas, Prairie View, and, and on and on. I, I shouldn't start listing because I'm going to leave somebody out. But, but we have a tremendous ability to attract the next generation of energy entrepreneurs and energy workers because of what we have in this area. And we need to work towards that because none of us know what the next big thing is going to be. Is it going to be hydrogen? Is it going to be geothermal? Is it going to be, um, you know, a, a new form of storage or the same storage? 
um, CCUs. I mean, we don't know what it is, but we should be welcoming of all of it. And we should want that growth to happen here because a rising tide floats all boats. Uh, that's not a Harvey reference, but just in general, <laughs> um, you know, we, we need, we need to all, yeah, we, we need a community. We need an energy community and it's going to take some work to get there. So I know you're battling some misconceptions from folks from the oil and gas side. I know Mike and I have, have had conversations with folks from the oil and gas side. And, and I know just after the freeze, I mean, I know the three of us have all in some form or fashion have had to have a conversation about, you know, what went wrong and everybody's to blame. That's a whole other story for another podcast. Oh, wait, we did a three-part series on that. What are you finding as some of the misconceptions when you talk to people about renewable energy? One that I've sort of enjoyed is I've talked to a couple of people recently and who are from the oil and gas sector. And one said, I talked to so-and-so, a CEO of a renewable energy company, and I thought he was kind of quirky. And I said, well, what did you mean by quirky? They said, well, he was very corporate. And I thought, well, what do you think that he's going to be? I mean, of course, he's running a company. He's very corporate. I had somebody else within a week of that, I had somebody else who said, yeah, I met these executives from this renewable energy company and they surprised me. And I said, and of course I said, how so? And they said, well, they weren't hippies. And I thought there is nobody. Number one, I am a former CEO of a renewable energy company. No one would call me a hippie, I don't think. And I think I'm probably pretty corporate. So, I mean, GE trained executive, I mean, that's just misconceptions, right? There's still that stereotype of renewable energy folks who are hippies, tree huggers, Bir- you know, Birkenstock and granola. That's still, and maybe it's because we are so, because it is such a die in the wool oil and gas industry. So maybe there are, there still is that, that tranche of folks who are going to hold on to that, even though, as you've alluded to, and I know Mike and I have, have been around enough renewable energy folks in the last year plus. Again, I, I, is that just people just aren't being educated and still holding on to those, those, those old stereotypes and just w- refuse to allow themselves to understand or appreciate what renewable energies become? Well, I have very few data points on this, but I did, before things shut down, I did attend a couple of oil and gas sponsored events. And and I did hear some speakers who were promoting more of that stereotype. I mean, I think people are just parroting what they've heard and it's not built on their own personal experience. So they've developed these impressions somewhere else. And I will say my first foray into renewable energy in 2002, it was, that was when it was transitioning because, you know, back years ago, you know, there were wind turbines being built in garages in California kind of thing, right. To, to get it all started. And, and um, you know, you used to hear jokes about the Birkenstock and granola crowd, but the industry, at least on the wind side, this is certainly true on the solar side, has been grown and developed through um, major equipment companies, like a GE or a Siemens or a Vestas, just to name some on the wind side. But project financing with, with big banks, big name private equity, and those have provided a, a big influence into what the uh, what the industry is now. 
Pandemic notwithstanding, and I know you and I have had a couple conversations about the work you're doing over there at uh, Renewable Energy Alliance Houston, bootstrapping this thing and, and, and putting this thing, pushing this thing through a pandemic. What are you most pleased with so far in your uh, first year? I'm most pleased with the fact that we're on the right track, that there's an interest in Houston, in, in many, many, many people in Houston, in being the epicenter of the energy transition it's definitely striking a chord. There are people that are concerned that have said, is it too late for Houston? And it's like, no, it's not too late for Houston. There is no epicenter for renewable energy. There is no Houston, Houston equivalent. As Houston is to oil and gas, there is no other city which is that to renewable energy. So there's, there's definitely time to do it. But you see great things happening. We had Greentown Labs announced their opening in Houston. Greentown's, you know, a Boston climate tech lab, which has, and its member companies have raised over a billion dollars in 11 years. And this is their first time to establish a presence outside of Boston. And they selected Houston. And when when asked why, and they, they gave the reasons that we know to be true about Houston, the workforce, the um, the interest in going to scale and just the basic DNA of Houston makes it right for these for these companies to grow and you, the innovation ecosystem growing in Houston that's super important because we need the next generation of um, energy um, leaders to be coming through Houston. And I've seen that happen. How's the city responded to uh, your overture, just for, for the push that you're making and what real Houston's trying to do? The city has the uh, climate action plan that it announced this past year. I'm a co-chair of one of the task force on implementation on that. You know, the city's very supportive of that. Primarily, well, there's the business aspect, but also just because of the ravages of the weather events that we've seen in Houston and the need to be addressing climate change and wanting Houston to not only address climate change within our borders, if you will, but also to contribute to uh, alleviating the risk associated with climate change. From a real Houston point of view, what kind of, uh, and I know I've been able to attend a couple of the webinars you've done, what are some of the things and some of the initiatives that you guys have been able to push this first year and building off of that, what are you hoping to do in year two? a little bit more than a year ago, there was a, an emphasis on networking and curate content that will be helpful both to people already in the renewable space and hopefully for those who want to learn about it. So we've had a series of webinars that present on topics and we try to make sure that we're breaking them down in a way that people who are new to the industry can understand, whether it's Power Systems 101, Renewable Energy, Offshore Wind, we had an energy storage event in um, January, which was very well received. We had an event talking about the Climate Action Plan and BP's involvement in its implementation. We also had an event, which a year ago we never would have envisioned, which was our initial careers in energy transition. And we did this teaming up again with Greentown Labs who is very focused on contributing to the community of Houston as a whole. And um, so they're, they're a terrific partner. And we had table leaders in this virtual networking event from a variety of companies and schools 
and provided a networking opportunity for people who want to learn what are the jobs in renewable energy? What are the companies? I mean, if you've been in oil and gas, you don't even know who you should be following on LinkedIn, right? You you may not know, maybe you do, but we want to visibility to those companies, help people appreciate that traditional, what we would call traditional names like Pattern, which is a fantastic developer and um, renewable energy owner. But don't forget also the construction companies and the other companies that, that, that need to hire people as well. Um, you know, and then don't forget there's residential, there's residential solar, not just grid scale wind. So Sonova hires a lot of people. So we just want to make sure that people are aware of that because there are some of them from my conversations feel like they're looking down a black hole and we want to shed some light on that. So that was an incredibly important event, big enough for us that we're going to, we're going to do another one of those coming up at the end of this month. For the folks that are listening, uh, obviously, you don't have to be here in Houston. I mean, it's again, it's virtual, so it's you know you can literally be wherever you want to be. But uh, tell the folks at home uh, where they can sign up and just a little bit about the event that's coming up. Uh, I believe on March thirty first. Yeah, it's March thirty first from noon to one thirty, and Real Houston is again teaming up with Greentown Labs to present careers in energy transition. We use a platform that Greentown has called Remo, where people can actually select what table they they choose to, to occupy to, to talk to people from these different companies. We also are very excited to have Katie Maynard, who will be speaking. Katie's the CEO and founder of, used to be Pink Petro, it's now Ally, which is a um, online platform, which is addressing multiple issues related to the workforce, including the transition from oil and gas to renewable energy. And she herself has made that pivot. She's former oil and gas, and now she's refocusing her company to also include renewable energy. So, and it's free. Our events are free. And um, and if somebody is working in renewable energy and they want to be a table host, we're not charging for that either. So you can come sit for an hour and a half and meet some really uh, interesting people who are passing through with our last event in December, I expected our participants to really enjoy it because they had that opportunity to talk to these companies. But what I was most surprised at was the number of table hosts who said, wow, I met so many really great people because we need the renewable energy companies to also understand what the talent pool is, right? We need, and we need the talent pool to understand who these companies are. Some some of the companies know already. If you look at, for instance, a Broadreach Power, which is an energy storage developer, they specifically brought the business to Houston to take advantage of the talent pool. They're here because of that. Interesting, they also have a private equity backing, which is Houston-based, which was traditionally in the oil and gas space, but which is making that pivot So I would say that's probably another thing, getting back to your question about what's exciting. You're seeing the equity move also. You're seeing the the investors that are interested. And we want to make it easy for companies, these firms, to to get comfortable with renewable energy. And 
start developing the vocabulary because the, you know, obviously the capital infusion is, is going to be a huge requirement and a huge opportunity for Houston. Hey Kay, other than attending your webinars that you have, how can people get involved with Real Houston if they choose to? Are there memberships that are available? What are the options that people have? We have corporate memberships, but we also have individual memberships. You can find the information on our website, renewableenergyhouston.org. Thank you. They'll find a link there. As we start opening up and we start having more options on how we will be getting together, then we'll also be having, you know, in-person networking events because there's there truly isn't a substitute for that, right? So now we're we're big on on information, but as we um, as we move along, we'll be working more on creating those in-person synergies and awareness. And you know, we're only we've only been at it since August, so we're still developing our programming. So we'll continue to add to what to what we're doing. Have you had any companies or CEOs of your ilk? That have approached you about, hey, we're thinking about making that transition from being a brown power company to a clean energy company. How many how many of those have approached you? I hear from asset managers, private equity. I've heard from technology firms. I've heard from uh, recruiters. I had a recruiter call that said, we've been recruiters in oil and gas and now we want to recruit in renewable energy. What do we need to do that? And, and the answer usually comes back to the same as you need to start with information and developing an understanding of the industry and developing an understanding of the vocabulary and the different issues at hand. And there are so many great sources for that. A University of Houston has a, has a group called UH Energy, and they have put together some really great white papers and also online webinars, which are free. Um, which you can also access through the Center for Houston's Future, which is, you know, one of our local think tanks who's doing a lot of a lot of work along this line. And um, and, and just starting, I mean, again, the educational institutions are big. I mean, you've got Texas A&M has a fantastic master's program and certificate program in energy, which I'm a, a big fan of. And of course, you know, Rice is always uh Rice is always doing good things as well. So there, there are resources at the at the different schools. And then, pardon me for just I could I could talk about this forever, Fred. You know that you also have Lone Star College teamed up with a solar installation group, and they're doing a training program for people to do um, solar installations. And I believe you'll continue to see the community college systems around Houston get involved in workforce training and workforce development. Well, I'll tell you what, and that's the first time we'd heard of that, so I do appreciate that. And uh, like I say, we will definitely make sure we get people to RenewableEnergyHouston.org. Last thing, last thing, and this, this, is, uh, this is in your wheelhouse. It's March. It's International Women's Month. All right. You have uh, been a, a pioneer of sorts in the sense that, you know, here you are on both the renewable and well as the oil and gas side. Uh, you've had a tremendous career. Where are we at as far as female executives. What was the feeling when you got started? How did you envision your career unfolding? And what are some of the challenges that you've had to go through being a woman? What do you try to do to empower and mentor other young women? You know, when I started practicing law in the 80s, 
Only 11% of the lawyers in the state were women. And that's licensed, not necessarily practicing. You know, so I've always worked in, in arenas which have been sparsely populated by women at the higher levels. And I never set out to be the CEO of, of a wind company or any other kind of company. But along the way, I had people who encouraged me to expand my view, to look at the world from the business side. Great training at GE. He was like an on-the-job MBA from them. And I've had uh, great support, frankly, from a lot of men along the way. And when I made my big jump from the legal side to be a CEO, that was through private equity doing that, which is pretty unusual. That's not necessarily a, a great, generally a great space for, for women. But, you know, I, I think it, it, at this point, when I look back on it, and I, I saw a stat the other day that 6% of the CEO energy companies are women. And I thought, well, I wonder what that number was back when I was doing it. But you know, it's all good, right? I mean, it's all I, I, I would have hoped in the 80s that when we were in anything that started with 2000, the conversations wouldn't need to be happening, but they do. I will say in the renewable energy space, I find a culture that, well, I'll just say this. I mean, I've put together panels and as I'm putting together panels, I try to, I'm always looking for representation and I need more. But I've had panels where a man has said, hey, you don't have a woman on this panel. I have a woman on my team who can take my seat and present just as well. And then our board, we have four women out of nine on our and I think that's not inconsistent with a trend. We're not there yet. The renewable energy industry has an underrepresentation of people of color at the, at the highest levels and women in other groups. You know, we just keep having the conversation. Thank you for that, Miss K. McCall. Once again, you can check out all the information about Real Houston at RenewableEnergyHouston.org. That's RenewableEnergyHouston.org. And, of course, sign up for their upcoming webinar on March 31st, making the transition into the renewable energy space. Stay tuned to The Green Insider as we close out Women's History Month with two great episodes featuring Ann Niemer, COO and co-founder of eRenewable, as well as Jane Strecker, Senior Relationship Manager with BP. Can't wait to sit down with both of those ladies as we close out Women's History Month. It's the Green Insider Podcast powered by eRenewable. As always, you can find all the podcasts over at Apple iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And then, of course, you can always catch them over on the website as well, www.erenew.net. That's erenew.net. want to thank everybody, all the listeners, Mike Niemer, Ann, and everybody else for making this podcast possible. Shout out to Kay McCall as well. This is the Green Insider Podcast powered by eRenewable. We make going green easier. <laughs>